0: Hoy there, my fellow banjo loving brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. This is Keith Billick. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a great episode. I didn't want to bury the lead. I, I have been thinking a lot lately. This is this is a an off topic segment, but um, something that's just been on my mind a whole lot lately is voting. And this is not a political podcast. It's not about to turn into one. But hopefully we can all agree, at least those of us who are in the states uh, like I am. We all know there's a big election coming up unless you've been living under a rock lately. So I, I really, really encourage you that if you are eligible to vote, please make sure you do so. Every state has different requirements and different deadlines by which you need to register or mail in your absentee and all that stuff, please take the time to to make sure you know what's going on and to ensure that you get a chance to have your voice heard and to influence the future of our country. It's something that means a lot to me. So even if you're not inclined to do so, do it for me. I'm pledging to like any social media posts I see regarding people mailing in their vote or, or showing their their sticker uh, it's just something I feel very strongly about so for those of you out there who are eligible to vote please make sure you do so I'm also happy to help if any of you need a hand researching what the deadlines are in your state give me a holler picky fingers banjo podcast at gmail.com that is also how you get a hold of me for any podcast related questions or concerns or questions did I already say questions? Anything you need to get a hold of me about, that's where I am. Another thing that is very dear to my heart is the lovely, lovely Patreon supporters of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. For those of you who don't know, the main way this podcast sees any kind of revenue is through the generous support of the patrons. And you can check that out by going to patreon.com slash Podcast. Today's official sponsor of the episode is a gentleman named Adam Barnes. Adam really displayed the selflessness that is typical, of course, of all Picky Fingers listeners. We're, we are all a generous bunch here. As as you might be able to tell, I, I typically ask these patrons to tell me a little bit about themselves. And th- the one thing that Adam really wanted me to do was Well, for one thing, he's a picker down in Jasper, Georgia, and all he wanted really was to give a shout-out to a few banjo pickers who have really helped him along the way, specifically Jim Panky, Jody Hughes, and Eli Gilbert. And for anyone who doesn't know who they are, they are three very prominent internet instructional gurus through their instructional videos and their online lessons. Um, just really great stuff coming from from all three of those guys, and Adam and I have interacted a little bit. There is a Discord site, and I'm getting a little out of my element here. I'm not I'm not too uh, tech savvy, but uh, Eli Gilbert has set up a banjo discussion Discord site in which we you can uh, interact with him and Jim and Jody are all on that site. Talking banjo with with players from around the world, answering questions about all sorts of different topics, and I really wish I had a way. I don't even know how to tell you how to find it, but any of you who would like to know, send send me an email and I'll make sure to find out. Or if you know how to get a hold of Eli Gilbert, he's the one who set it up, and he can he can send you a link to that. Uh, so that's really cool. And Adam is on there, and. Adam, thank you so much for your generous support of the podcast. I really appreciate it, and I I literally couldn't do it without people like you. So once again, that's patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Other ways to support the show, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, picky underscore fingers. I'm on Twitter, at banjo podcast. I'm on Facebook just under my name, Keith Billick, and there's also a Facebook group for Picky Fingers listeners. So check out all of that. Tons of great ways to be in touch with not only me, but plenty of other banjo players throughout all those things. This episode is a freshly picked episode, and today we are going to explore the album titled Heart Lake by banjoist Ben Krakauer. Ben is among the more creative banjo players that I've ever heard in terms of just exploring different boundaries and different territory that he can take the banjo. Most notably, he's highly influenced by jazz and Indian music, but I remember seeing him back, oh, uh, tons of years ago, I'm not even going to try to guess the number, playing with Old School Freight Train. And even back then, he was he was coming up with new different sounds for the banjo, and it really caught my ear. And it was really cool to see him come out with this album and being able to catch back up with him after so many years. I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, one brief programming note, uh, hopefully it won't be too noticeable, but we did have some technical errors this was an online conversation so you might you might notice that there's a little bit of longer pausing going on in the conversation or a little a few glitches and uh i did my best to edit those out i don't think it affects it too much but um i'm i'm a little hyper aware about all those stuff so i always feel like i need to apologize in advance for it but uh anyway i think you'll really enjoy this conversation with ben krakauer and enjoy the sound samples from his new album called heart lake here it is Well, first of all, thanks for carving out the time to to talk to me during these these weird times. It's nice to nice to still be able to touch base with some good banjo players out there, and I've I've really been enjoying your uh, Heart Lake album. So, congrats on putting that out into the world. First of all,
1: yeah, thanks. I'm so I feel really lucky that I got to record it and do some shows for it before this whole shutdown happened.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I've been a fan of yours for for quite a long time going back to like the the old school freight train days and used to run into at IBMA a little bit and stuff like that but um I know you've been playing the whole time but it's it's been a while since you had like some tangible recorded output to put out there so I guess before we start dissecting all the all the tunes themselves maybe Start by telling how long Was this in the making And what kind of catalyzed you To to actually get a lot of these tunes Down onto um, record
1: Yeah I would say that this project I've been working on the project Since 2016 I can't remember So I think what it was Was I was going to this There's this annual music gathering Some friends organize And I, you know, there's like a Instructor concert thing and I think I just wanted to have some original material for it and I wrote some tunes Mm -hmm. and then the I had like while I was there I was like just really happy with how the arrangements came out and it made me feel excited about making an album so I guess after that and that was basically that was with Duncan and Nick who were both on the album and Paul Cohort was played bass on that at that particular gathering. So, um, and they just sounded so good and yeah. made the tune sound so good. So I guess ever since then, I was sort of thinking, okay, like I want to write a bunch of tunes and make an album with this kind of a sound.
0: Yeah. And I think overall, this is definitely different in a lot of ways from a traditional, certainly a, tra- a traditional bluegrass album, but even a lot of banjo albums, where it seems to be at the same time more composed in some ways, but then also more improvised in other ways. I don't know, was that a thought out process? Or is that just how you end up
1: approaching things in general as a musician? I mean, I think that just reflects my tastes. Like, a lot of the music that I love to listen to, I can't really play, like, I don't really know how to play, but I but I love it. So I guess in writing the tunes, it was like, I really wanted to write exactly the sound that I wanted to hear because I might not be able to create some of those sounds spontaneously. So I worked really hard to yeah. create the sounds that I wanted that otherwise are not necessarily like totally accessible to me. But then as far as like, just kind of who I am as a musician, like what I feel, what I like to play and what I feel like is fun. I really love that whole kind of improvisation thing and the the sort of open quality in ensemble playing. So I guess, I worked really, really hard on the compositions, but then when it came time to play them, it was also really fun to, at least in some of them, to have some of those improvisatory or even like kind of like dialogue type sections. Yeah, and a lot of them
0: also depart from like a standard AABB form, or if you're into jazz, an AABA form. A lot of them don't exactly follow that. Is there a place in your musical influence or history that 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 comes from? Or is that just another product of your of your taste? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think I realized that one, like I don't like to listen to I I like short kind of I like tunes and songs that are fairly short. So I wanted to keep things, you know, generally under Mm -hmm. like five minutes or even under four minutes and I like things that have contrasts where like you're you're always getting pulled in by some new either contrast or kind of hook or something. And I guess a lot of that's coming from popular music where there's like verse chorus, but then maybe two thirds of the way through the song, there's also a bridge which goes to some other tonal center. And I feel like that's in yeah. pop music, but it's also in, you know, like I guess a lot of the, like the sort of new acoustic stuff. Like I haven't gone through and like analyzed Flectone's albums to say that this is true of their music. But I imagine if you listen to Bela tunes, there probably would be like a third section that shows up somewhere as like a contrast to the others. So I guess yeah. that three part structure was definitely something I had in mind, except for the tunes. There might be a couple on there where there was maybe just one section or maybe just two sections and that just already felt done. For
0: sure. For sure. But a good example of the call of that question, I guess uh, is evident even on the the first track, the which is the title track Heart Lake. And something that I think is really noteworthy with that is that s- sometimes there's this conventional wisdom of the first track needs to grab your attention and and hit you over the head with with the energy of it. and you seem to take the opposite approach where it's it's very subtle and it builds very slowly.
1: you know tune order all credit goes to Nick Falk. so Nick is the is the drummer on the album and we co-produced it so before we got into the studio he did a lot with me f- with like pre-production where I'd sent him demos of me and then he'd kind of send me drum parts and I'd respond and tell him what I liked or would want different and then we'd kind of we kind of got the drum parts in place there so anyway he he was doing all the pre-production and then I would say I had a pretty strong sense of what I wanted as far as like sounds and what I preferred and what I was going for but when we were actually in the studio he was just so clutch with like a lot of decision making and like big picture thinking of like you know what I think we've got the take like let's move on and then also with the album sequence it was kind of incredible like one morning I just like walked up and was like hey so what are you thinking about album sequence and he had just jotted out basically what is the sequence for the album as like a draft. I think there may uh-huh. be two tunes we switched, but he had that vision and I don't know what I would have come up with if I were choosing, but it just, it just felt yeah, right when I, we listened through.
0: I think, I think part of what I like the most about it is how it signals to the listener that in this album, you're going to really hear the, the touch of the instruments, you know, cause, cause that's, how it starts is in a very delicate way. And I think that continues throughout, you know, you can hear the, the finger plucking the violin strings and your palm muting sounds and and stuff like that. So I I think it's really effective and and it does build and it does draw you in. And I don't mean to say that it's a lack of energy, but maybe a lack of volume and and that kind of thing.
1: Thanks. I mean, Um, yeah, I appreciate that. Like that's, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: So I mean that's that's Heart Lake and like I said it kind of sh- shifts not shifts moods but it introduces a new section kind of halfway through it and I don't know I guess that j- it's just a, a good f- first track for all those reasons and that it represents some slightly unusual structure.
1: Yeah. Really cool. And actually credit goes credit goes to Duncan and, I- and- Dan as well on the on the arra- we we co-arranged all the stuff. Like I had a rough draft arrangements in mind, but when we got together, we really kind of as a group arranged the material. And um Heart Lake, I was kind of um, thinking of it as like a fiddle tune, and I was picturing it was mm-hmm. an ABC fiddle tune. I wasn't thinking of the C part as a bridge, I was thinking of it as a C part. So, yeah, I think Duncan and Dan in particular <sighs> had that idea of, like, I think the C part will be stronger if we don't play it as many times and if we treat it as a bridge. I assume
0: just based on the fact that he's a drummer, maybe he has less of a natural gravity pulling him toward a bluegrass song structure. Maybe that's part of it.
1: Nick, um, so he's, I mean, he is from, like, a jazz background, but um he's really into old time music so i don't think he i don't think oh, he's like into bluegrass per se although he's played with lots of great bluegrass musicians but he really loves old time music and his wife he lives in galax and like his wife is from a okay. kind of an old time music family so like and bluegrass family as well so he is he's definitely plugged into fiddle tunes and is pretty deep into fiddle tunes he plays callheimer banjo as well oh how cool i knew i liked him The next track,
0: Poodles, it reminds me a lot of like the playful melodicism that you hear from like Alison Brown tunes, reminds me a lot of her stuff. And I don't know, I really dig you kind of do like a, my notes say that it's like a Bossa Nova backup section. And I guess what I was going to ask you about is something that you may have already answered. Your liner notes say that it was working this tune up specifically that made you want to record the album so so like I said you you already kind of answered that but if there's any if there's anything else particular about that song that that made you write that in the liner notes what what might that have been
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think it was just that experience of collaborating, both both hearing what it sounded like, but also the social experience of collaborating with those musicians. And like I said, it's a different bass player on the album. So Paul was part of it in 2016, but then Dan Klingsberg, who plays on the album, he came to that same gathering. He might have been there in 16, but from 2017, he was the bass player that I would work with at that same gathering with Nick and Duncan, and just working with them and they, they, what they approach they bring, and that tune to me is also kind of comical. Like, the, the title, Poodles, like, to me is, is like a little bit, like, funny, <laughs> and, like... I guess yeah. the groove and the kind of what you're talking about, the kind of like upbeat, very bright, almost like Bossa. I was trying not to have it be Bossa Nova, but it does have that aspect. To me, there's something like a little bit. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, 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 that's cool. To me, it's just something like a little bit like cheerful and playful and, like, funny and silly about it that that I just kind of liked, you know. You mentioned Alison Brown before, and I wasn't aware of, of her as being an influence for that song, but I will say that her uh, Fair Weather album was just, is, is, like, such a classic, and that, you know, I, when that album came out, it was definitely like a huge yeah. inspiration for me in, in some, like, a formative kind of a time.
0: Yeah, I don't know, there was something about it that reminds me of, of something she would do, and the fact that you made kind of a joke about, like, the the playfulness kind of draws me over to like track four is Hazel Park and like, Hazel a lot of these do kind of have a darker tone to it and I don't know that's another good example of just really capturing the the touch of the instruments where nothing really juts out at you but um it's almost like a trance a trance track or
1: or or something like that Hazel Ave um, yeah yeah I guess for me, um, you know, I think I I mentioned in the liner notes, like some of the kind of inspirations for the, for the album, but there's this whole kind of indie scene in Chicago of artists who are kind of working the intersection of a bunch of genres. And there's this kind of like jazzy, like hip hop sound that a lot of artists, you know, use in that scene. And I think for Hazel Ave and the upside in particular, That was sort of a thing I was going for with the the kind of down-tempo, introspective, like instrumental sound. I feel like it's a bit unusual with banjos and fiddles and stuff to not have it build to solos or not have it build to a fast section but right. it was just a melody i kind of worked on a lot and just wanted that mood to kind of be there so Nick's the drum part is so minimalist but just so like right on and and Dan played electric bass on that track and just really you know just really killed it yeah yeah it's a cool it's a cool vibe for
0: sure we we passed over the the prism and I, th- I think that's a real good example of of your personal style, which I view as being relatively like angular, if, if that makes sense. I don't know. Where, where do you think you get that influence from? Because that's that's definitely a little, and I think you've always had that ever since I, I first heard you, but um, I, I don't know, where do you think that influence comes from? Because it definitely sounds not very Scruggs or not very baila Fleck.
1: Yeah, that's specific from my jazz improvisation teacher in college, this trumpet player named John D'Earth. And when I took lessons from him... I wanted to learn how to do I want like I was I wanted to learn how to do what Bela does like when you hear Bela play at Telluride and he plays nine-pound hammer and he does some like really just like single string solo that You would like never expect so I think when I was a teenager I heard that and really wanted to do it So I took jazz lessons in college, but my that my teacher's whole thing that he kept kind of uh, encouraging me towards was to use more space And to try to create angular kind of lines, I guess he was thinking like, if I'm coming from bluegrass, what's like, what can he give me as like a challenge that's very different than how I normally would approach it as a bluegrass banjo player? So yeah, he, I would say he fairly explicitly kind of steered me in that direction of like angular kind of playing and always changing the tone or the timbre around, like not not using the same timbre all the time. And um, so that's definitely just kind of a formative like influence for me and yeah and in terms of changing the
0: timbre that that same track still on the prism has uh i just wanted to compliment that uh intense palm muting rhythm section totally awesome i I really dig that
1: is that something you get to use quite a bit i use that when i'm playing like duo stuff with fiddle or mandolin you know or do it with anybody really because it's that you know that that totally comes from kind of coming of age as a player in the early 2000s when like daryl anger and the chop and all these different bluegrass musicians were like using sort of like backbeat kind of oriented um like backup techniques. I feel like I kind of got into it then and listening to like John Doyle and some of those like con- like modern like Irish players like I think it's just a technique I got into back then.
0: Yeah, the monster rhythm machine kind of guys. Yeah. Totally. And I I can't believe we forgot to to mention this at the beginning. Are you still doing a four finger style?
1: I use a fourth finger, but I only use it for chords. Like I don't, I can't really pick with that finger as it basically follows my middle finger around all the time. So I don't pick with it separately, but if I want to do a four note voicing, then I'll use it. Okay. Interesting.
0: I don't know. And another thing that that I get from the album as a whole is that to most people, if you tell them that it's going to be bluegrass instrumentation more or less, but you've added drums, where their mind goes instantly is, oh, you're going to lose a lot of dynamics and, and subtlety. But you're, this record seems to have more of both of those things than most bluegrass albums or even a lot of acoustic albums. I don't know. How did, how did you manage
1: to do, to do that? That's got to be really challenging. I mean, that's just who Nick is as a musician. Like he's just very sensitive and responsive and he doesn't take up much space Mm -hmm. and he kind of plays the necessary thing, but he doesn't, he doesn't play like more, you know? So, um, Mm -hmm. and all three of them are just like incredibly sensitive musicians. That's, that's kind of like my, the first thing I look for in people I want to play music with is how responsive they are and how much of listeners they are and with people with musicians like that like it just automatically makes it like dynamic and and there's room for a lot of different types of tones.
0: Hey folks, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but the holiday season is coming up and is right around the corner and do you know what place is guaranteed to have something? for every person on your list it's elderly instruments and yeah I I am jumping to conclusions that everyone on your list wants a totally awesome banjo or mandolin or guitar or ukulele or maybe some accessories or instructional material whatever the case elderly definitely has it and you know I wouldn't steer you wrong with a matter of such great importance elderly instruments is one of the world's most trusted sources of new, used and vintage fretted stringed instruments. They're located in Lansing, Michigan, but they do ship worldwide. So even if you are not able to get into their really pr- impressive showroom in Lansing, Michigan, check them out at elderly.com and you'll see what I'm talking about. They have something for everybody and especially if you're a banjo player like me, you're going to get in trouble really fast. I used to work there. And I had to quit just to stop myself from spending money. Their sales staff is down to earth and knowledgeable. So even if you aren't sure what it is that you're looking for, they are there to help. Give them a call at 517-372-7880 and they can help you find what you need. Or again at elderly.com. Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is also sponsored by Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation is one of the best sites for streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and uke. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and all sorts of styles, and they have the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots music. Some Just a, a few of the titles that you can get at pegheadnation.com. Uh, And I'm just talking about the banjo courses here. You got beginning banjo with Bill Evans. Bill also teaches bluegrass banjo. You can take claw hammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward style banjo with Bruce Molski. the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wes Corbett. And no matter which course you choose, that's going to get you high quality multi-angle video lessons downloadable notation, and play-along tracks. Plenty of tunes to play along with. It's it's a very thorough course and done with the top-notch in video and audio quality. Uh, There is a bonus offer for listeners of this podcast. If you join any of Peghead Nation's video courses, you get your first month's free. And the way you do that is you enter the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's all one word, all lowercase, so once again, pegheadnation.com, pick fingers at checkout for the promo code, get your first month's three. Check it out.
1: The tune Ibis, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, I think so. It's a type of bird, and I think that's how you say okay, it. Okay,
0: cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the liner notes say that the melodic rhythms were inspired by Indian music what do you mean by that? Or what would be the the example or how, how can someone listen for that influence and that tune?
1: Yeah. So I mentioned in the liner notes, like, um, so I, you know, I lived in, in, in West Bengal for a year and, and spent other time there doing this research related to this, this book project that I have and, um, spent time with a lot of musicians from the, uh, like they're called baul musicians or baul folk musicians. And there's a type of music, the one guy who i who i took some lessons with is named basudeb Dasbal. and um he's a, a big influence in his playing is from this this like north bengali style or assamese style called jumur and what instrument does he play he plays like it's kind of like a banjo actually sort of like a fretless banjo called dotara and he he plays a lot of instruments but um anyway it's this um it's just this particular type of like rural kind of regional Bengali music that has like that I mean the the basic groove that like he would use is for, is like like that kind of thing it's it's like a it, it correlates closest to like six eight, but it's so stretched out and really interesting. So anyway, the B part or the C part in Ibis, the melody there and the groove there. Mm-hmm. Like I'll kind of keep the beat, but it's like um, let me get the let me get the key real quick, or maybe I can just play it for a second just so you can hear the melody. Okay. But to me, like the rhythm of this melody is very much inspired by that thing. I don't think it's like it's not like there's a specific tune that it sounds like, but the way some of the the rhythm of some of those melodies is kind of what I was thinking of with this B part. Uh, uh. Uh, Let's see. It's been a long time since I played that. Let's see. <laughs> that thing um, is okay. like, yeah. Did
0: you learn how to do the the rhythmic vocalizations? when you were
1: over there? That's me just imitating, you know that that's system. me just, I know what you're talking about. It, I, I did not learn how to do that. And the thing I was just saying was just me imitating what the drum sounded like. Yeah, right, I, I, kind of, I kind of assumed,
0: but I thought maybe you had uh, picked up a bit of that also. So I don't know, I, I have to ask, cause I always love uh, the times that I've gotten to go see Indian music live, uh, witnessing them do that. And in some cases, They'll actually take time to teach the audience some of the of the basics, which is all always just mind blowing when they teach you all the the polyrhythms that they're working with. Pretty cool. I was disappointed to read that Weller was not named after the uh, bourbon. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if you're a, a a bourbon fan, but that that's a it's a popular one. So when I saw that name, I'm like, oh, all right, Weller bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's like a short and sweet bluegrass song and then goes right from bluegrass into I don't know if you'd call it like bebop blues for grant which which I think is like a fantastic band feature tune like this fiddle we got to talk about this uh fiddle sounds like if John Coltrane played the the fiddle
1: I know um has some nut stuff yeah, like, those musicians, that, yeah, I mean, Duncan just plays this amazing stuff. He does some sort of Flight of the Bumblebee kind of sounds in there at some points, and... Yeah, yeah. The, all three of them are, are, like, super adept at that kind of open jazz sort of idiom, you know? And, like, yeah, they all go crazy on that. Yeah.
0: Then the next one, the upside, I we got to talk about the production on this one. Is that is that double-tracked banjo? Yep. It is. And you just played the, the same thing and panned left and right?
1: Yeah, I can't remember. That's really cool. I don't right. remember how what the panning thing was, but yeah, I just recorded the same thing twice.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Whose idea was that?
1: That was my idea. Again, just like a lot of the music that inspired that type of sound coming out of that sort of jazz, hip-hop, Chicago, indie thing and a lot of the instruments, a lot of the melodic instruments there, like, are different. I couldn't even tell you, like, roads and different things like that, and I couldn't even really tell you what production goes into it, but it seemed like double tracking a banjo would be a good way of creating some of that aesthetic.
0: And then is that a... what's going on
1: with the fiddle on that one? Is that a flanger? <laughs> So that was, um, if I'm getting it right, a Leslie speaker. Or like a, Le- a Leslie cabinet or something? It's a Leslie cabinet, like a six, you know, six foot tall, like big, you know, vintage cabinet. And Duncan is all about that. And like he had been, he he, like, he was like wanting to do that the whole project. And like, I was thinking, no, it's going to be over the top. And we tried some other things. And then he did that and it just sounded awesome. It was like <laughs> perfect for that solo. Yeah, it's very cool. No, I, I
0: I admire a little bit of of envelope pushing. That that's that's always good fun.
1: Duncan um, Duncan and Nick Now when you when you wrote that one, it's a very sorry, sorry go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was gonna say that Duncan and Nick played for many years in a band there was originally Eric Robertson and the Boston boys and then it was the Rondo Riggs and the Riggs. Uh, so they had a few names, but Duncan used to use a pedal a lot. That was like kind of that Leslie or like organ type pedal. And he'd play all double stops for sort of R and B type material. So that's anyway, that's just an aesthetic that he's into.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, the, the melody for that tune is really very sparse. So I'm wondering, did you, when you wrote this, did you already have the band in mind? Because otherwise it's almost hard to envision it sounding good without a lot of these other instruments to fill in the space or or to support the banjo melody of that one.
1: I I think I was more just trying to create, I, I did not, I mean... I guess I had, I guess I sort of knew that I would be for this instrumentation, but I think more I was thinking of the rhythm of the melody and the way it sits against the chords. I guess I was just going for those things and all these tunes, but that one especially, like I would just keep making voice memos of like revising the melody bit by bit by bit, revising little phrases, and we just keep recording voice memos all the time and just, um, I guess, yeah, that's the best answer I guess I can give.
0: So what were we just talking about? I was asking you if Groundhog Speed worked in a jam for Ground Speed, and I think you were saying that it does. But that's when we ran yeah. into to some to some trouble. So so start start back up with that one.
1: It does, yeah. I mean, you can just treat it as a break for uh, for for Ground Speed. The B part, I mean. Depending on who you're playing with, the B part could like just derail things a little bit because it's got that like that triplet feel thing. But it's fun. I mean, the, the A part definitely works as a as a break for the eight part,
0: we've pretty much gone through the album. Another thing I forgot to mention, though, is uh congrats on being the magazine cover model, man! I just got my banjo newsletter. That's really cool. Thanks. Yeah, it's uh, um, yeah. That's that was definitely an honor. I think I told someone else that's basically like making the uh, Forbes 500 list in our in our industry, isn't it? Right. <laughs> yep. I found it really interesting your your story about um, someone had made a comment about the space you you know you've already you talked about this with your with your jazz studies but someone had made a comment to to allow the banjo to take up more space and it did occur to me that you have all sorts of anti-sustain measures in place for one thing you play the the banjo which just never has too much sustain you do a lot of single string techniques, which is famously short and and choppier sounding. And then you do a lot of palm muting too, which kind of kills anything that's left. And I'm wondering if that affected your, um, your approach to the instrumentation. Like if if you really wanted to have, for example, drums and or a bowed instrument, was that a conscious thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess the reason why I use those techniques you mentioned is because I do, like you said, used that word angular before. Like, I do enjoy that kind of angular approach. And I love, I like the drums and I like plucked bass, like not bowed bass, but plucked bass for the way that those the drums, bass and banjo tones are all these like short kind of percussive tones. Like, I like that thing. And definitely fiddle is a great it's it's great to have fiddle to play some of the lyrical melodies that like in poodles, that B part melody of poodles, like I can play it on the banjo, but it sounds much nicer if I'm playing it at the same time as a fiddle player. Who's like mm-hmm. really sustaining it.
0: Well, with that in mind, I mean, you, you've already talked a bit about them, but uh, I always like to give you an opportunity to, to introduce people to the other musicians that were on the album. Maybe, maybe just do it like a real quick rundown of, of the other performers and, and, how you know them and what skills they have that really made you want to dive into this project with them as as your team members?
1: Yeah, so Nick Falk, who plays drums, I know him because when I stopped playing with old school Freight Train at the end of two thousand six, he joined after I left. Like I stopped playing banjo, and he joined as a drummer, and I've kind of, I've gotten to know him over the years since then. And I just love what a sensitive and responsive player he is. And I really do love drums. And he's one of those drummers that you can actually collaborate with as a banjo player without, you know, without it creating like difficulties with volume and stuff. Duncan, I've, you know, been friends with for a long time. And, you know, I love his fiddle playing. He's like, I love what an. He can do all this crazy stuff. Like you use the Coltrane, like comparison before. He can do all this like amazing virtuosic stuff, but he's such an understated player, and I really love that about him. Like, it's not the like soaring, like O'Connor approach to fiddle. It's more this like comp drier kind of commentary that he has the way he plays fiddle, which I really love. And then Dan Klingsberg is um the musician who yeah, yeah. guessing not as many people would know because he's a younger up-and-coming musician, but I've just like really enjoyed getting to know him and playing with him for the past several years. And, you know, again, like, like the other guys, he's just like very sensitive, responsive musician. And he's got, he's got a kind of like, um, I I like working with him too, because he's very like, he's easy to work with, but he's also very direct about things that he does or doesn't like. And I just, I kind of appreciate that. And, um, and, and the other thing I would mention about all three of them, I think when you listen to this album, it wouldn't like remind you of old time music, but actually the genre references that the four of us have in common are really old time music and jazz. Like all of them are really, are really into old time music and we've all, you know, they're all much more proficient at jazz than I am, but that's another sort of common ground. So I don't know what that says about the final product, but that's, that's, those are some underlying threads there.
0: Well, I think a lot of, and I'm not a serious old time musician by, by any stretch, but what I've tended to get out of it is that it's, it's less about the, you know, the, the solos and all that. And it's more just about feeling in sync with all these people and, and feeling that, you know, just, just the groove for, for lack of a better word. And I think, I think some of these understated tunes, you know, we, we, we talked about the Upside or Hazel Ave, they have that trancey quality and old time music when it's at its best has also a trancey quality. So that's not, that's not too surprising to hear you say.
1: Yeah. That focus on rhythm and tone and playing together and kind of big picture awareness is definitely, yeah, definitely similarity there. And of course that's all true about jazz as well. Just a lot of times when blue, when jazz enters bluegrass, We tend, players tend to borrow the notes or like want to borrow fancy virtuosic stuff about it, but jazz has all those characteristics as well. Yeah, that's a,
0: that's a good point that it is more, or or it's not just about playing, um, augmented altered chords. It's, it's, it's also about the, the rhythm and the communication that they bring to it. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to... stop talking without also giving a shout out to who who did the uh, painting for the the cover
1: oh man that is like one of my favorite things about the album that that's um a friend of mine named Iliad Sabji and he's you can look him up online um if you go to my bandcamp page you'll see how his name is spelled he is um we we lived in the same town in India when i was there he's from Iran and i think he lives in he kind of, he, he usually lives in Turkey or Georgia or Iran or India. He kind of moves around a lot and he's just this incredible artist. And that, the cover of the album is like, it's a fraction of this giant painting that he did. And he, he just let me use a, you know, photo reproduction of part of it as the cover of the album.
0: Oh, I'll have to check that out. Cause yeah, the, it's a, it's a beautiful album
1: cover. I, I really, I really dig it. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up. Thanks. Cool. Yeah, his his artist page. I think the website is called sachi.com or something and his his artist page is just really incredible. Like really expressive stuff. Yeah,
0: I mean if we're, if we're doing a proper sh- shout out, you're right. It's it's sachiart.com and that's S-A-A-T-C-H-I is how you spell sachi. sachiart.com/ uh Iliad, which is like the Iliad and the Odyssey. Yep. So uh yeah, check that out. It's 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 a lovely looking uh, product. Very cool.
1: Yeah. And one more shout out I would give um, the person who did the art design, basically who, you know, who figured out how to use portions of Iliad's painting in order, you know, to use in the packaging my of my CD is uh, Deepankshu Roy, who is a really incredible mandolin player who lives in Kolkata. And he's like, you know, there aren't that many bluegrass players in India. And he is like, I mean, he's really studied like Bill Monroe and David Grisman especially, and um, I would encourage people to check him out and his various projects. Some of his social, one of his social media handles is Dolan Man, like mandolin spelled backwards. So anyway, he's a really great (laughs) artist and musician. Oh, how cool. That's really
0: interesting. I love hearing other people's takes on that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, did we forget to say anything that you'd want to say about or, or point out? I don't know if you have like favorite sections that we didn't didn't cover that you want to draw people's attention to anything like that.
1: Well, um, I mean, I know some of my favorite parts. Um, that like you mentioned, "Blues for Grant." I really, I really like that a lot. That we we kept recording. We did a whole bunch of different live takes of that one, and the version we kept is like the one that you know obviously was our favorite. I really like that. I like the um, Rukaya and Andrew's Waltz which is the slow one yeah yeah I wrote for some friends who got married and but I don't know what I'd say about it I mean I would just be I'm just so happy to have the album out there and to have to have a piece of work that I feel like is representative of the kind of music that that I want to create you know and it just makes me happy that anybody would listen to that and and I love it when people get in touch and have like feedback or you know, it's just, it's just, um, it's been very fulfilling to get to do that project. Um, do you have, do you have anything more to say about your
0: personal composing process? Is there, is there any kind of common thread to these in in terms of, um, you just your, your writing process or, or anything to say about that? Um,
1: process wise, um, I guess that whole method of like recording a lot of little voice memos, like whenever I get an idea, I'll record the memo and I'll just keep on doing that and doing that so I don't have to worry about writing it down or forgetting things. A lot of times I'll put down a second layer of banjo, like the upside, you were asking how I wrote that. I remembered also that the part that Duncan plays on rhythm cello, he plays like a plucked cello part I kind of did a thing like that on banjo, like muted banjo and recorded that and then would like write the melody against that backup. And then, Mm. um, I made some demos where like I was playing electric bass on the demo and like doing that kind of thing helped me write the tunes a lot. And I guess also, you know, thinking of like how I used to write, like in the old school freight train days, like, I think I used to be on this thing of as soon as the tune, as soon as I had a draft of the tune and I was ready to jam on it with other people, I'd feel like it was done. And I think maybe with age or maybe just with doing more with like writing words and reading words, I've just embraced like revision and how great it is to just keep on revising a thing and and not being scared to like delete whole sections of a tune and replacing them with something else or swap out the B part of something like, so just really like embracing that kind of like long process of writing and revising um, has just been a thing. I've that definitely was yeah, how I people, wrote all these tunes.
0: Yeah, sometimes people have the approach that once you record them, they're set in stone, and I guess in so, in some way they are. But it can also be a springing off point. Yeah, absolutely. This this podcast, of course, is for banjo nerds. So tell us what banjo or banjos. Uh, we're hearing on this album?
1: Yeah, it's um, a 2007 Heartland banjo by the late uh, Robin Smith. Mm -hmm. And um, it's got 24 frets, but within the scale length of the normal 22. So in other words, the bridge is like farther towards the center of the head, and the frets are all a little bit closer together. So... If anyone's oh. ever learning stuff from the album and encounters some chord that's like crazy, like really sprawled out, you know, it's literally <laughs> you easier for me to play on to this say. banjo than on a regular banjo.
0: <laughs> oh, how interesting. And so the, the bridge being closer to the center of the the head, that's kind of the concept of those uh, stealth banjos too. Are you familiar with those? Yeah. Uh-huh. What? So what does that do uh, to the tone, do you think?
1: Well, I think it makes it more resonant and more overtony, which is great for sitting around the house and practicing. I think Uh it's probably worse for playing with other musicians and cutting through them. So like, ever since I've had this banjo, I don't often play with guitar players because I find that it's kind of like competing for that same sonic range. So I definitely am actually thinking of getting a reg- going back to regular twenty two fret, regular scale length banjo just because I miss having an instrument that can cut a little bit more. But this yeah. is an instrument I love. I love playing by myself around the house and I'm happy with how it came out on the album.
0: I mean you could you could kind of split the difference and get one of those extended neck ones, right? True. If you, if you really thought you needed the twenty four frets.
1: I could, yeah, I might I might go for that. Um, I know I sometimes pick really cl- sometimes I pick really close to the fretboard and I wonder if having extra ones would I like, get in the way, but maybe not. Oh, yeah, good point.
0: interesting. was that was that your idea to to go with a design like that or did you just happen upon it somehow?
1: I think I happened upon it when I talked to when I, I commissioned Robin to build the specific instrument, and I think he was just telling me. I think I told him about the tone that I wanted, and I think when he heard me say how I wanted such like a resonant kind of warm sound, I think maybe he suggested this as an option. And it just sound, I kind of liked the idea of having two extra high notes like that. Oh, how interesting! Yeah, that's cool.
0: All right, so uh, I guess tell people where to find if they're interested in checking into this album a bit deeper or checking into to you and what you're doing how do people
1: find you online yeah um i would say go to my bandcamp page so if you just google my name ben crackhour and and bandcamp you'll find the the album itself i also have a website bencrackhour.com if you want to know about the like sort of the academic stuff that i do as well And I, and I think my um, people can contact me through those pages. Um, And yeah, I would, I would encourage people to like be in touch. Like I I just, I don't know. Like I I feel, I really value music for like connecting people. So like, you know, if if people, if you're, if anyone out there is listening and is like trying to figure out one of the tunes and has a question about what happens in measure 12 or whatever, you know, I'm happy to to be in touch (laughs) about stuff like that just as like random, you know, one-off email or whatever. I just finished teaching uh, my first year at Warren Wilson College, which is it's in Swannanoa, North Carolina, just outside of Asheville. And it's the same. Some of you have probably some of the listeners have probably attended the Swannanoa Gathering. It's at that same uh, it's not only in the same town, it's that same campus where that event is held. And it's a really cool place. Um, so the music department, we have a. we have like a general music major, but we also have this traditional music major and um Phil Jamison who's an old time banjo player fiddler dance caller very kind of you know established person in the old time community teaches uh, in the department and so does Kevin Kerberg who is um he's a bass player and musicologist and he does jazz and old time and bluegrass and he's done some recording with like Raina Geller and Billy Contreras and Chris Sharp he's he's you know he's uh, he's recorded with a lot of people Anyway, yeah, it's, it's a really, I would, if there's any listeners out there who are, uh, you know, high school age or have kids that age who are interested in, in a college where they can study bluegrass and old time music and, and also other things, you know, I would definitely encourage them to check out Warren Wilson. I teach bluegrass ensemble there, banjo lessons and classes. And then I also teach stuff like music theory and other like music history and culture uh, type classes. Um, and it's also a cool school because it's, it has a a farm. It's like a work school where students, you know, a lot of students come there who are interested in things like forestry or taking care of animals or, you know, gardening. It's, it's a, it's a really cool place. I definitely feel lucky to have ended up there. Oh, that's really cool.
0: Uh, I have a feeling some people might take you up on that. That's a really cool offer. Well, excellent, man. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time. And, um, Hope to see you back out in the, in the, in the real world. If that ever happens again.
1: Thanks Keith. Yeah. I hope so too. Thanks for, for bringing me on your show. It's, yeah, it's an awesome welcome. show by the way. I should, I should say that like while I'm on here, it's a really unique uh, service and definitely, uh, you know, thanks to all the Patreon supporters of this podcast. Cause it's really valuable.
0: Oh man. I couldn't have said it better myself, even though I do say it all the time. And, <laughs> and, and yeah, thank you. I I'm doing the easy part. I get to talk to, to, banjo players about banjo music. That's, that's a piece of cake for me. All of you guys have to actually be out there writing the music and and performing it. So it's, it's totally my pleasure, but um, do appreciate you and appreciate your time. Thanks. Yeah. Likewise, Keith.
1: All right. Take care. Yep.
0: Thanks for joining me for this episode, folks. I hope you really liked hearing about Heart Lake, the recent album by banjoist Ben Krakauer. Thank you once again to the Patreon supporter of the show, Adam Barnes. If you are interested in becoming a Patreon supporter, go to patreon.com slash banjopodcast. Get a hold of the show by emailing podcast at gmail.com. Buy some t-shirts, banjopodcast.com. Do you have enough things to remember yet? I think I'll just uh, cool it there and let you be on your merry way and we will see each other again very soon. Don't forget to go vote, people.